This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS News of the World from the morning of October 30th, 1942. The report includes updates on the war from New York, London, Cairo, Moscow, and Washington. The introduction is cut off of the recording and the sound quality isn't great for some of the overseas reports, but we do get the full news update. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Jason. Before calling in London, here are the latest details on the fighting in the New Guinea area in the Southwest Pacific. General MacArthur's flyers are continuing to support our men in the Solomons by raiding Jap bases. In the latest attack, Allied bombers scored a hit on a Jap ship at Buin on Bougainville Island. A heavy explosion followed. Four other ships were straddled by Allied bombs. However, the damage done couldn't be observed. The raid was made at night. No Jap planes tried to break up the attack. And all Allied aircraft returned safely. In New Guinea, Australian and Japanese ground troops are engaged in bayonet fighting. The Aussies have driven the Japs from positions near Alola, eight miles from the Jap base at Kokoda. A score of Japanese soldiers was captured. The Australian advance is continuing. Two Jap aircraft raided Port Moresby, the Allied supply base during the night, but damage was slight. Now for our reports from overseas, we hear first this morning from the British capital. We take you to CBS London. Bill Downs reporting. Herbert Morrison, the British Home Secretary, said some things in his speech last night that should have been said a long time ago. Paradoxically enough, his speech was made in answer to people who have been damning the British, not in Germany, but in America. Mr. Morrison frankly took the British light from under its traditional self-effacing bushel and said that Britain need not apologize to anyone for its prosecution of the war during the past three years. Then he said, we have made mistakes and suffered ill fortune, but happily, we owe no one an explanation on that account except ourselves. Mr. Morrison pointed out at the time Britain stood alone before the massed armies of Hitler, a large proportion of the world was generous in its applause. Today, he continued, it seems to be rather a different story. We are having critical shafts directed at us from various points of the compass. The British Home Secretary did not say Britain was above criticism. Mr. Morrison said Britain during the past three years has fought a hard and honorable war. He reiterated the victories over the Italian army in Abyssinia, the defeat of the German Air Force in the Battle of Britain, the ordinary man's victory over the intense German bombings of Coventry, London, Plymouth, and other towns. Concerning India, the Home Secretary said that that nation was made a fair offer of independence, an offer designed to cause no rift in the Far Eastern War effort. This offer has not yet been accepted. Then he said, this is not the moment to stop and consider why. However, the most important fact to emerge from all of this talk of dislike and criticism between the British and the United States is that the ordinary Britisher here, 
doesn't quite know or understand what all the shouting is about. The little people of Britain like the Americans and show it every day in their treatment of our soldiers. He wants the Americans to like him. But whether the people of the United States love him or despise him, it is not vitally important to the British man in the street. The important thing is to get on with the war and the victory. There is a standard joke on this side of the Atlantic which the British repeat whenever the question of British-American relations comes up. The Britisher will put down his pint of beer and grin and say, you know, it appears that your people in America only like us when we're suffering or being bombed or something like that. And now for news from the Egyptian fighting front, I take you to CBS Cairo. In the first week of the new Allied offensive in the Western Desert, American fighter pilots have outfought, outgunned, and outmaneuvered the best that the Luftwaffe can swing against them. The score for the first five days shows it. Our pilots shot 22 enemy fighters out of the sky with a loss of only two of their own. Broken down, their victories are as follows. 14 Messerschmitt 109s, four Italian Mackie 202s, and four Fiat CR-42s. Our fighters have been all over the place, on patrol, on stropping jobs, as escort, and sometimes on fighter-bomber missions in which they have dive-bombed the enemy's airdrome. But their primary job has been to hunt and kill other fighter planes. They try to draw the enemy off his field and make him fight. And that is why they carry bombs with them, to force the Messerschmitts and Mackies to mix it in the air. This morning, I spoke with one of our pilots, First Lieutenant Lyman Middleditch, Jr. of New Jersey, who has set the pace for our fighter squadrons with four destroyed Messerschmitts to his credit. Middleditch tried for three years to get into the Air Corps before they decided his blood pressure would take it. The other day, he downed three Messerschmitts in three minutes. His black scorpion squadron was flying top cover when, as he says, the sky was suddenly black with ME-109. They looked like brand new ones, and I guess they had just come over from Crete. There were 20 Messerschmitts, and under them 20 CR-2s, and way under them, some 20 Stukas. I picked out the two Messerschmitt element nearest me and got a good burst. He took a fast climb, rolled over, and dived for Earth. Then I went for the second. I had height on him, but too much speed, and I knew if I tried to turn under this, under this guy and get him, they'd give me everything they had. So I drove right on and kept going, and as I twisted out of the dive, I could see their 20-millimeter bursts go floating by, and then I saw the first ship spin into the ground and explode. But Middleditch was where he wanted to be by now. He was under the M.E.s. When one dove too close, he eased up his nose and gave it to him and watched him go spiraling down. Then a third M.E. came in so close that it looked like five feet, and he, too, spun into the sea. Yesterday, our, bom our, our bomber pilots and the RAFs were on again over the enemy's landing ground. On land, the battle was going slowly. On Wednesday night, our infantry made further gains, and a mixed bag of prisoners came back to the cave. Small battle groups of German and Italian armor shot at us from long range, and our tank guns answered. We claimed many direct hits, and many panzers wrecked or burning. I return you now to CBS in New York. A further report from New Delhi states that a joint communique issued by British and United States Army headquarters in India says that British Blenheim bombers have attacked Japanese-held airdromes at Baku and Huebo in Burma. Next, for the news of the Soviet capital, we take you to CBS Moscow, Walter Kerr reporting. 
the Russian communiques in reporting the battle for Stalingrad have been very specific in reporting how the front varies from day to day. It is seldom in this war or any war that a high command tells about how many yards the enemy has gained. More frequently, we hear of a new town under attack and by looking at a map can tell how many miles an army has moved. But on Tuesday, the Russians said the Germans had gained between 200 and 300 yards in their fight to get through Stalingrad's factory district and reach the west bank of the Volga. On the 28th, that is Wednesday, no gain was reported. Yesterday, the Germans moved between 100 and 200 yards, and today the communique says that they advanced from 50 to 100 yards. That means that at Stalingrad, where they have 15 infantry divisions, four tank divisions, and three motorized divisions, the Germans have moved from 350 to 500 yards in four days. If the advance has always been in the same sector, they've traveled about as far as the man who sets out from 42nd Street in New York and walks to 46th Street or 48th Street. On the other hand, the gains may have been achieved at a number of points along the line so that the total advance toward the Volga may have been even less. In these recent days, then, the Germans don't seem to have moved very far, but there are several unknown factors here. We do not know exactly where they are today or how far they have to go. What we do know is that between them and the Volga is a factory district that differs from factory districts in America. Around Stalingrad, every plant is surrounded by a number of administrative buildings, apartment houses, and individual homes. This is what the Russians call a worker's village. And in this village are elementary schools, stores, clubhouses, motion picture theaters, and markets. Between the workers' villages and the center of Stalingrad itself, there are open fields, slopes, and ravines. We know that the Russians are holding the factory settlements and that the Germans are trying to take them. This is where the house-to-house and hand-to-hand fighting is taking place. This is where the barricades are, the minefields, the barbed wire, machine guns, mortars, and artillery. It was in the suburbs of one of these workers' villages that the Germans gained from 50 to 100 yards, as reported in the communique for today. To move that little distance ahead, they sent to battle one infantry division supported by tanks. And the 1,500 men died for those few yards. This is Walter Kerr, returning you now to Columbia in New York. And that was Moscow. Now, for the news from our own nation's capital, we take you to CBS Washington, Alfred Leach reporting. A highly unique Lend-Lease manpower proposal, I'm informed, is being studied here by policy-making officials of the government. The plan involves the use of volunteer manpower from our good neighbor republics to the south. A tentative name has been suggested for these men, agri-soldiers. The proposal, I'm told, was made originally by the representative of a South American republic where a considerable depression exists. These volunteers would have a quasi-military status. They would wear uniforms similar to the military uniforms of their native countries, but they would be for non-combat civilian replacement duty within the limits of the continental United States. They would be selected by joint commissions from the countries they represent and the United States. Their purpose would be to replace agricultural, dairy, and other essential workers drafted into our armed forces. I'm told that the volunteer workers would enlist for one-year periods, re-enlistment being at their discretion and upon the approval of this government. While this Lend-Lease manpower proposal primarily concerns agricultural workers, there would be some factory-skilled and technical workers also available. American forces in the Solomons are expecting momentarily a heavy Japanese naval onslaught against our admittedly outnumbered warships. 
But in the meantime, there's been no further word here since the Navy reported our forces at Henderson Field had recovered temporarily lost ground. And while this capital awaits further reports from the Solomons, proposals to revamp and consolidate the fighting forces are gaining momentum. Support is gathering for the proposal of Representative Moss, ranking minority member of the House Naval Committee, to combine the Army, Navy, Marine Corps into one fighting unit. Moss says he'll introduce such legislation unless the administration beats him to it. Senator Lee of Oklahoma is supporting the Moss proposal and has declared that the United States should have a unified supreme command with one minister of warfare. Other proposals gaining momentum are for the creation of a congressional committee to coordinate and expedite wartime legislation and establishment of an overall office of war mobilization headed by an economic general staff. This is Albert Leach. I return you now to CBS New York. Chile's relations with the Axis caused street fighting in Santiago during the night. Pro-democratic Chileans, most of them members of the Student Federation Youth Movements, tried to break up a torchlight parade of students, professors, and alleged Axis sympathizers. The pro-democratic group, of course, wants Chile to break relations with the Axis. The marchers oppose any change in Chile's foreign policy. Chile and Argentina are the only two American republics which still maintain diplomatic ties with the Axis. And that's the story from Latin America. In New Delhi, India, they're telling the story this morning of Major Bruce K. Holloway of Knoxville, Tennessee, an American pilot who made a devastating attack on the Burma Road. This is the report, as given in the CBI Roundup, newspaper of the American forces in India. Holloway led a flight of two planes with orders to strafe a Japanese truck column. Between Mangshi and a certain river bridge, the two planes destroyed 20 enemy trucks. Then Holloway says he pulled out of a dive. His plane flew right through the debris of one exploding Jap truck. He also hit a Japanese staff car, annihilating it and its occupants. Holloway felt ground fire hit his aircraft. Then he noticed that his oil pressure was gone. However, he was able to reach the Chinese lines and land unhurt. But his plane was ruined. The Chinese natives declared a holiday, and Major Holloway was feted at a banquet. Before being taken to a Chinese army headquarters, and here's another report on air fighting in that theater. The same newspaper states that Captain Albert John Ajax Baumler 28 of Bayonne, New Jersey, has shot down a total of five Jap planes in combat over China. Columbia's correspondents once again have reported the latest news direct by transoceanic shortwave radio. This morning you heard from Bill Downs in London, Winston Burdett in Cairo, Walter Kerr in Moscow, and Alfred Leach in Washington. <laughs>